Good morning and welcome to Bethel Christian Fellowship. You have come to a house of prayer for all nations, a safe place where strangers become friends. So if you're a guest with us today, we just anticipate that by the end of this morning, you will no longer be a stranger to us or us to you, but you will go out a friend. Thanks for being with us and we trust that the presence and goodness of the Lord will surround you this day. Lord Jesus, we give you glory. For all that you have done. Jesus, what would we do without you? Where else would we go? To whom else would we turn to? Jesus, you alone are all that we need. So Lord Jesus, this morning as we come to hear your word, Lord, we ask that you would give us good hearts. Hearts that not only hear Your Word, but retain it. And Lord, persevere and thus produce a crop. Lord Jesus, work the soil of our hearts today, we pray. And we again welcome You. You who are the living, eternal Word. Now come. With that word that is sharper than any double-edged sword and cut to the very quick of our lives, we pray that we might be transformed for your glory and praise in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. 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 This year is a year of outpouring. If you received a bulletin this morning, you saw the picture that beautifully illustrates that on the cover. You see the banner each week when you walk in and you see that pictorially represented of that prophetic word. And over the last several months, we've been going through a series of messages on strategic shifts the dislodging and repositioning of our hearts in order that we might receive His inheritance, which was our theme last year, and release His outpouring. Several weeks ago, I shared with you a message in that series on strategic shifts about making the strategic shift from the spirit of poverty to the spirit of generosity. You see, in this whole series that we've been doing, the Lord has been confronting in our hearts and lives specific spiritual giants that need to be destroyed in us individually and corporately. And as a follow-up to that message on that shift from poverty to generosity, we entered into a 40-day spiritual journey. A 40-day spiritual journey to a more generous life. And if you haven't yet gotten one of these uh, journals, I would encourage you to pick up. There's just maybe a couple. I don't even know. There might not even be any left. But um, one of these journals. And today we are on day 36. So we are just coming to the end, but you can start over and go at it 
whenever and however you want to choose to do so. And also, over these weeks, for the last six weeks now, or finishing today, the sixth week, we've been looking at six treasure principles out of this little book from Randy Alcorn, The Treasure Principle, Unlocking the Secret of Joyful Giving. And so this morning... We're coming to the end of that series of messages and we're closing in on the end of our 40-day spiritual journey. And today we're going to be looking at this sixth principle, which is that God prospers me to raise my standard of giving, not my standard of living. God prospers me to raise my standard of giving. Now, I'd like to begin this morning with a few simple facts for you. Did you know that 6% of self-identified born-again people tithe? 6%. Did you know that 25%, again, of self-identified born-again people give no money at all? The average church member gives 2.6% of his or her income to the church. The average evangelical church member gives 4.2% of his or her income to the church. If the average American Christian tithed, the church, macro sense, the church, would have an additional $143 billion, that's billion with a B, Billion dollars a year for kingdom pursuits. Now, I don't know about you, but there is letters in my mail just continuously with requests and opportunities for kingdom pursuits of folks that are really needing help to make that happen. Think of that. $143 billion a year. I'm getting all kinds of feedback up here, though. Did you know that 84% of BCF members give regularly? We blow all of these statistics way out of the water. <laughs> now, let me mentioned that we're looking at BCF members, those who are those who have gone through the process of becoming members of our congregation. That's what this study, you know, just kind of basic study is done about. We have lots and lots of folks who attend here regularly and participate in the life of the church who aren't members who are also giving regularly. But eighty four percent of Bethel members give regularly. Fifty seven percent of BCF members are tithing. Remember, what's the 6% is the average number? 57% of Bethel members are tithing. 14% of BCF members give occasionally. In addition to the 84% who give regularly, 14% are giving occasionally. And 2% have no recordable giving whatsoever as opposed to, whatever, 25% being the national work. The question still is there. If all of BCF members tithed, 
The church would have an additional... Now, we don't have any way of calculating those numbers because you all don't send us your W-2s, so I have no idea. All right? And please don't, but... The church would have an additional what? A year for kingdom pursuits. Still getting feedback here, Bill. Luke 6, 38. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Or in the New Living Translation, give and you'll receive. Your gift will return to you in full. Pressed down, shaken together to make room for more. Running over and poured into your lap. And the amount you give will determine the amount you get back. Or as it says in the message, give away your life and you'll find life given back. But not merely given back, given back with bonus and blessing. Giving, not getting is the way. Generosity begets generosity. Now, some of you who might get the Pioneer Press noted that there was an article in the paper just a few weeks ago. And that article was somewhere back in uh, uh, mid-March. All right, After we'd already begun this series. And then somebody... Uh, emailed it to me after I'd already, I had read it, but they wanted to say, hey, did you see this? this? This confirms the very thing that we were talking about here. The title of the article is, The More You Give, The More You Shall... Dot, 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 smile. Sharing money makes people happier than having a lot of it, study says. Washington. That's the, the whatever place that it came from here, this article. The Bible counsels misers that it's better to give than to receive. Science agrees. People who made gifts to others or to charities reported they were happier than folks who didn't share, according to a report in today's issue of the journal Science. While previous studies have shown that having more money can increase happiness, the researchers at the University of British Columbia and Harvard University wondered if the way people spent their money made any difference. Turns out it does. Lead researcher Elizabeth Dunn, an assistant professor of psychology at the University of British Columbia, said she wasn't surprised that doing something for others made people happy. But she was struck by how big the effect was and that how people spent money was more important than how much money they had. This work suggests that even making small alterations in how we spend money on a daily basis can make a difference in happiness, Dunn said in a telephone interview. That doesn't mean go out and get a high-paying job so you can spend tons of money on others. The message is, given what you have, how can you make little alterations to do something for others, she said. The researchers started by asking 632 Americans, 55% of whom were women, to rate their happiness on a scale of 1 to 5, with 5 being the happiest. They asked the participants to report their annual income and estimate how much they spent on paying bills, buying gifts for themselves, buying gifts for others, and giving to charity. The first two were considered personal spending and averaged $1,714 a month. The second two were termed pro-social spending and averaged $146 a month. Personal spending was unrelated to happiness, the researchers said, but higher 
pro-social spending was associated with significantly greater happiness. They then studied 16 employees of a company in Boston, asked about their happiness one month before, and six to eight weeks after each received a profit-sharing bonus. In the second interview, they asked about personal and pro-social spending, and once again, those who spent more on others were happier. The manner in which they spent that bonus was a more important predictor of happiness than the amount of the bonus, the researchers found. Finally, 46 Canadian students were asked to rate their happiness, and then each was given a random envelope containing money ranging from $5 to $20. Some were instructed to spend it on themselves. Others were told to buy a gift for someone else. When asked to rate their happiness, the amount of money had no impact. But those assigned to buy something The amount of money had no impact, but those assigned to buy something for another person reported greater happiness than those told to get something for themselves, the researchers said. Isn't that interesting? Science agrees with the Bible. Imagine that. So I'm going to begin by asking a couple of questions. The first question is this. What should be our giving practice. What should be our giving practice? Now, for many of you, this is going to be familiar information. But this morning, before services began and we were in our early prayer time, the Lord really put in my spirit, again, that word that Jesus gave when He talks about the parable of the sower and the seed. And He says at the end of that, He talks about the different soils and the different hearts. And then he talks about the good and noble heart. And the good and noble heart is the heart that not only hears the word, but retains it and then obeys and perseveres and produces a crop. And so this isn't about just simply giving you information. The Lord wants to activate something in our hearts today because He wants to actually move foundation stones in our heart and release the outpouring through us as we receive His inheritance to us. So how's that going to happen? Well, as we begin to practice giving. Practice, practice, practice. It's like practice hospitality. We need to practice. We need to learn. And what is that practice? How do we do that? What is our giving practice? Well, the first is tithing, which is giving 10% of our gross income. Of our gross income. Years and years and years ago, I wish I could find it. I had a recording of a, of a humorous Christian humor group that, that did this whole thing on... It was a... It was a spoof on on tithing and accounting and this whole firm that would help you take deductions so that your tithing amount would be less and less and less. You know, you could take all these different deductions. But actually, the Scripture doesn't have any sense of that. It just, the simple instruction is 10% of the gross amount of your income. There's a number of different Scriptures that talk about tithing. In Luke chapter 11, the one that's listed up here, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and He says, Woe to you Pharisees because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. This gives me a good opportunity to mention to you again 
This whole series on 40 days to a more generous life is not about your money. It's about our hearts. The Pharisees were doing the right thing legally. They were following it right down to their little mints in their garden. They'd give one leaf out of the ten to, you know, whatever. And yet their hearts, they were totally abandoning the love of God and justice and all the things that God was truly concerned about. So Jesus says, begin to practice those, but don't neglect the other as well. Because there is an inextricable link between how you think about and behave with your money and your spiritual life. It goes on. The Scriptures in Malachi 3, it says here, Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me, but you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You're under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. Did you know that this is the only place in Scripture that God invites us to test Him? So I would like to invite you to test the Lord. We have a little card in your bulletin. It's called God's Promise Card. I'm going to ask you to prayerfully consider filling this out. And the ushers will be in the back at the end of the service. And you can just drop in the copy that says BCF copy and take the other home to remind yourself. Let me read you what it says. It shares that scripture from Malachi 3. And it says, my part is to test the Lord in obedience to his word. I'm beginning to tithe. I'm continuing to tithe or I'm increasing beyond the tithe. God's part is to bless me according to Malachi 3.10. Our part as a congregation, as ministers of Bethel Christian Fellowship, we will encourage one another to be obedient to His Word, allowing Him to significantly, I'm sorry, strategically shift us that we might be properly positioned to receive His inheritance and release His outpouring. Signature date. And if at the end of this year I feel that tithing has been a mistake, has not resulted in the blessing of God, or has created a financial hardship, I understand that I'm released from this commitment. We're not trying to bind you to something legally here. There's nothing legal about this. Okay? We're not binding you to something. We're simply inviting you to open the door to the blessing of God. But pastor, isn't tithing one of those Old Testament things that passed away? What does it have to do with us now? Well, you know what? Tithing is an Old Testament practice that, again, Jesus speaks about here in the New Testament. The New Testament talks about something far more vigorous than just tithing. Grace is much more demanding than the law. You see, in grace, we get to give a whole lot more than the tithe. That's just a beginning place. It's actually all His. And the question isn't even, how much should I give, but how much do I get to keep? Now, the Bible provides for other ways in which we can practice giving. A second way is through our offerings, giving contributions beyond the tithe. By the way, let me pause for a moment before I talk about that to to give you a word of encouragement to those of you that are parents with your children. I learned the principle of tithing back when I was a child, when I would get my allowance, when I would mow a lawn 
I began to give a tithe of my money then. It's, you know, it's easier to, it, 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 as you begin to develop that practice and discipline in your life at an early stage, it carries with you. And the blessing of the Lord carries with you throughout your life. And I can tell you, I can stand here this morning and testify that God has been faithful to do His part in my life and in the life of my family. And there have been numbers of times where we have been in significant financial strain and hardship and the Lord has always done His part. Always. 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 He is faithful. So begin to develop that practice in your children now. Begin to develop that practice and model it for them in your own life. Several scriptures that speak here of giving contributions beyond the tithe. By the way, when we give and the opportunities are there before us to give, those are opportunities that are beyond the tithe. We don't take from the tithe to give to an offering. When we have this opportunity next week to give, in this offering for the Rasmussen's and team and the church over there. It's not in place of or, or, or taken from your tithe. It's beyond that. It's an opportunity to give above and beyond. As it says here in Exodus 35, then the whole Israelite community withdrew from Moses' presence and everyone who was willing and his heart moved him came and brought an offering to the Lord for the work on the tent of meeting for all of its service and for all the sacred garments. All the Israelite men and women who were willing brought to the Lord free will offerings for all the work the Lord through Moses had commanded them to do. And all the officials and all the people brought their contributions gladly, dropping them into the chest until it was full. These are offerings above and beyond. There's so many different opportunities that the Lord gives us to bring offerings, both within the church and outside of the church. I mean, there's so many different organizations and opportunities that we have to give to the work of the kingdom in offerings. The third is through benevolence or alms. It's giving contributions to those who are in need. This is a significant scriptural principle and a significant scriptural teaching. It's found both in the Old and New Testament. In Acts chapter 2, all the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Giving to those who are in need is an essential part of being a disciple of Christ. And it's an essential part of our own joy and our own in experiencing the goodness of the Lord in our own lives. I love this story. It's told by, it's recounted in Philip Yancey's book, Reaching for the Invisible God. And he tells this story um, that was told to him by Dr. Paul Brand, who was a very famous um, physician who worked with lepers in India. He writes this. He says, Dr. Paul Brand told me of his most memorable visitor to Valor, India, where he directed a leprosy hospital. One day, a French friar named Pierre showed up, a homely man with a big nose, wearing a simple monk's habit and carrying a single carpet bag that contained everything he possessed. Over the next few weeks, he stayed with the Brands and told them his life story. 
Born into a noble family, he had served in the French Parliament until he became disillusioned with the slow pace of political change. After World War II, with Paris still reeling from the effects of Nazi occupation, thousands of homeless beggars lived in the streets. Pierre could not tolerate the endless debates by noblemen and politicians while so many street people starved outside. During an unusually harsh winter, many of the Parisian beggars froze to death. In desperation, Pierre resigned his post and became a Catholic friar to work among them. Failing to interest politicians or the community in the beggars' plight, he concluded that his only recourse was to organize the beggars themselves. He taught them to do menial tasks better. Instead of sporadically collecting bottles and rags, they divided into teams to scour the city. Next, he led them to build a warehouse from discarded bricks and then start a business in which they sorted and processed vast quantities of used bottles from hotels and businesses. Finally, Pierre inspired each beggar to give him responsibility to help another beggar poorer than himself. The project caught fire, and in a few years, an organization called Emmaus was founded to expand Pierre's work into other countries. But now... He had come to Belor, Pierre told the brands, because the organization was facing a point of crisis. After years of this work, there were no beggars left in Paris. I must find someone for my beggars to help, he declared. If I don't find people worse off than my beggars, this movement could turn inward. They'll become a powerful, rich organization and the whole spiritual impact will be lost. They'll have no one to serve. At a leprous Leprosy colony in India, 5,000 miles away. Abbe Pierre found at last the solution to the crisis in Paris. He met hundreds of leprosy patients, many from the untouchable caste, worse off in every way than his former beggars. And as he met them, his face would break into a huge grin. Returning to his beggars in France, he mobilized them to build a ward at the hospital in Valor. No, no, it's you who have saved us he told the grateful recipients of his gift in India, we must serve or die. We must serve or die. We must give. Or we'll die. There is life when we give. Tithes, offerings, alms and benevolence. If you want more biblical reasons, look at page 37 and 38 of the 40-day journal for 10 biblical reasons to give 10% or more of your income to the Lord's work. And those are listed for you on the other side of that insert in your bulletin this morning along with the quarterly report. And, and there's all the scriptures and, and more, more about each of those principles is given in the journal. And I would encourage you to take that and read that carefully. Now... What should be our giving pattern? If our practice is to give in tithes and offerings and alms, what's the pattern with which we are to be doing that practice? I've got, I think, about ten different things. And again, if you've got your bulletin, you can use the tear-off and it's, there's a sermon note side. And, and keep track of these. These will help you, remind you. What's supposed to be the pattern of giving? What's my heart attitude? What's my... What's, my, um, my, what, what's the way in which I am to be doing this practice of giving? Now, if you have your Bible, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. Because here's where we're going to be finding these principles. And they'll come right out of 
this passage in the Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 or 9. If you don't have a Bible, you can pull the Pew Bible out in front of you. And the verses will be up here on the screen, but I want to encourage you to, to take a hold of these principles and read them and reflect on them and continue to, to absorb them and retain them and begin to act on them. Okay, so what should be our giving pattern? Now, everybody be prepared because we're going to want a collective ooh and ah in just a moment, okay? The first principle of our giving pattern is this. Give. Ooh. Ah. Give. Give. You can think about it. You can talk about it. You can read about it. You can intellectually assent to it. You can say, "Mm mm-hmm. Isn't that nice? Give. As it says in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, each one should give what he has decided in his heart to give. You can't have a pattern of giving without giving. you got to give. Now, the next two actually come out of the last chapter of 1 Corinthians 16. Now, these 1 and 2 Corinthians are letters that Paul wrote to a church, the church at Corinth. And he was giving them instruction. And he gives them instruction in 1 Corinthians 16. He tells them two, two more principles related to this pattern of giving. The first is this. Give regularly. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money. The first day of every week. That includes vacation weeks. And other weeks. 52 of them, if I have my count correct. And give proportionately in keeping with his income, saving it up. Now, remember I talked about, we talked about the small alterations. That was in that article, by small alterations. Here's a small alteration that you can make. Rather than coming on Sunday morning, and when the offering is going to be received, opening your wallet and finding out how much available extra cash you might have on hand, or opening your checkbook and after a moment of silence and then weeping, looking a bit more closely and saying, oh, maybe I can squeeze out. Start thinking and come intentionally prepared. Putting your giving, I mean, basically... it it should be the very first check that gets written after you receive your income, after you receive your pay. Give regularly and give proportionately unto the work of the Lord. Give sacrificially. Give sacrificially. Now we're going to just kind of walk through 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. I can think back to specific times in my life when the Lord has invited me to do something that seemed very counterintuitive. <laughs> depressed me beyond what I thought was actually possible. 
and invited me to a specific sacrifice. And every time, the Lord has honored that. I mean, He just... He gave sacrificially. He gave it all. Give sacrificially. Give voluntarily. As it says, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service of the saints. Please, would you let us participate? We want to give too. Voluntarily. Not manipulated. Not because somebody says, you know, it's, it's got to come from that voluntary place of your heart, which, which this particular point is such a key. This is sort of the fulcrum that all of the other principles ride upon to give worshipfully. Because it says in 2 Corinthians 8.5, and they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. Here it is again. First to the Lord. It's about your heart. And when we give ourselves first to the Lord, and all that we have is surrendered to Him, then He directs every other area of our life, including our finances, including our time, including our talents, because this giving is not simply about your money. It's about your heart. And out of your heart, it's out of your life. He may be inviting you to give your home. In hospitality, He might be inviting you to give your time. He might be inviting you to give your time first to Him in devotion to the Lord and then to one another. He invites us to give everything that we have first to Him. And then it gets poured out to others. Give worshipfully. Give excellence. Give excellently. But just as you excel in everything, in faith and speech, in knowledge and complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. Excel. Isn't there a, is there a computer program called Excel? Is that something with spreadsheets and all that? I wonder where they, maybe they got that out of the Bible. I don't know. Give excellently. With excellence. You do all the other areas of your life you do with excellence. Do your giving with excellence as well. Give willingly. Here is my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he doesn't have. God's simply looking for your willing heart. Are you willing to give? Give generously. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. If any of you are gardeners, you know this. You put three seeds in the ground and you might get one. Put 300 seeds in the ground, more is going to come on up. You reap what you sow. Give and it will be given to you. With the same measure you use, it will be given to you. You want to use a teaspoon in God's ocean? Well, that's your deal. 
Give me a big bucket. Right? Yes? Give generously. Give cheerfully. This is something that maybe we all can grow in. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I shared this a few weeks ago, but you know, the little boy who was sort of had his own paraphrase translation of that, he said, Oh, daddy, daddy, I learned today in Sunday school, we're not supposed to give with convulsions. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver. I'm telling you, I'll tell you right now, I'm excited about the opportunity to give next week to Steve and Jan and to, to team and to the ministry in Tanzania. I'm, I'm already got a smile going about that. That I have the opportunity to participate and bless. Yes, it helps that I've been there. And I know John. And I know the church there. And I've met my brothers and sisters there. But I'm telling you people, it will put a smile in your heart and a smile on God's heart when we cheerfully give to His work and to participate with Him. Give cheerfully. Now, what's God's response? How does God respond to generous giving? Um, we're doing, if, if, when we do our peace, and we follow this practice and pattern, what can we expect? How, how might we expect God to respond? Keep going in that Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians 9. Um, God gives us more money than we need so that we can give generously, Randy Alcorn says. Second Corinthians 9, 8-11, he gets it right out here. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Can everybody say all with me? All? Say all. He is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, He has scattered abroad His gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. And you will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Woo! All right, three things. Three responses that God has to generous giving. The first is this. He responds with abundance. That all, 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 He's able to make all grace abound to you at all times for all you need, everything. That's the way God responds to generous giving. Let's look at 2 Kings chapter 4. Great story. 2 Kings chapter 4 that really illustrates this point. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that he revered the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. Elisha replied to her, How can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a little oil. Elisha said, Go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. 
Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside, shut the door behind you and your sons, pour oil into all the jars, and as each is filled, put it to one side. She left him and afterwards shut the door behind her and her sons. And they brought the jars to her and she kept pouring. And when all the jars were full, she said to her son, bring me another one. But he replied, there's not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. And she went and told the man of God and he said, go and sell the oil, pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. All she had to bring to the Lord was empty jars. But the Lord loves to fill empty jars. And He wants to fill the emptiness of your life with His fullness in every area. Bring Him your emptiness that He might respond with His fullness. Because God responds with abundance. second thing He responds with is favor. Now, Paul quotes here. He gives a quote in 2 Corinthians 9. He he writes here, He has scattered abroad His gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now, if you follow the note on that, you'll find that Paul here quotes from Psalm 112. From Psalm 112, the righteous man. I'd like to read that psalm for you because it tells, again, about how God responds to generous giving. Listen to what he says. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who finds great delight in his commands. His children will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house and his righteousness endures forever. Even in darkness, light dawns for the upright, for the gracious and compassionate and righteous man. Good will come to him who is generous and lends freely, who conducts his affairs with with justice. Surely he will never be shaken. A righteous man will be remembered forever. He will have no fear of bad news. Any bad news lately in the uh, papers or the news about... Our economy? I don't know. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is secure. He'll have no fear. In the end, he will look and triumph on his foes. He has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be lifted high in honor. The wicked man will see and be vexed. He will gnash his teeth and waste away. The longings of the wicked will come to nothing. The righteous man receives favor from the Lord. The generous one. God responds with favor. Third and lastly, God responds with multiplication. Again, as we look at our text in 2 Corinthians, it says, Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness and you'll be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. A great Illustration of this is found in 1 Kings 17. Take a look there, if you would, with me. 1 Kings 17. We'll begin in verse 7. Sometime later, this is a story about Elijah the prophet. It says, Sometime later the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. It was a time of famine. It was a time of great need. It was a time of great, um, uh, of great destitution. And the word of the Lord came to him and said, Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. Listen to what it says. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. 
So he went to Zarephath, and when he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so that I may have a drink? And as she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Things are a little rough. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and for your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. And she went away and did as Elijah had told her. And so there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Hmm. As she was obedient to the Lord and Elisha was obedient. It wasn't about just giving to the servant first. There was a principle here. It was giving to the Lord. And as she gave to the Lord, the Lord provided for her. God's economy is not a fixed loaf economy. And so I only have this much slice and if I give any of it away or somebody else takes a slice, there's not going to be enough for me. God's economy is not like that. God multiplies the loaves. His is not a fixed loaf. All right. Last question. What's the final result of living a generous life? What's the, what's the final, you know, at the end of the day, what's the epitaph written over a generous life? What, what is said about this generous life? Look at the very end here now. In 2 Corinthians of our passage this morning. 2 Corinthians 9, 12 to 14. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you proved yourselves, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the Gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given to you. Here's the final result. Others are blessed. When you live a generous life, others around you are blessed. Not only that, we're blessed. And let me be very clear, it's not a crass, you know, you give ten and get a hundred back. God's got a lot better stuff than a hundred. Okay? Make you rich in friendships, rich in wisdom. Rich in goodness and favor of God. I mean, there's, God has all kinds of ways of showing His favor to His people and provision as well. And God is blessed. It's a win, win, win. Everybody wins when you live that generous life. So I invite you this morning into that generous place. And the final benediction on that is found in 2 Corinthians 9.15. Thanks be to God for His 
indescribable gift. His gift is indescribable. He has given us the gift of Himself. He is our true treasure. And He has poured out into our lives all of His goodness and graciousness towards us. So how can our heart respond with anything other than Hallelujah! Thank you, Jesus. So I'd like to ask the worship team to come on up and we're going to sing together the chorus that's been around a long time, but it just, as I was preparing the message, I just sensed from the Lord that the response today was to be a response of thanksgiving. Again, I invite you to take this response card and drop it in to the ushers or bring it back next week. Or, and, and why? Simply that we can agree together with you and encourage one another and to take a step in obedience and faith to the Lord. God is faithful. He is able and He will do exceedingly and abundantly above and beyond all you might even ask imagine. Trust Him, people. Trust Him.